This is the Scaling Up Podcast, and I'm your host, Itamar Katch, the Leadership Development Manager here at SimilarWeb. And my role as a business psychologist is to ensure that we develop our managers to be the best around. Get ready to hear some fascinating discussions and stories with great leaders, and in the process, pick up some practical tips and tricks to add to your managerial toolkit. On today's podcast, we have Richard Robinson. Richard has spent over 20 years in leadership roles in digital, data, tech, and marketing companies, from the large corporates to small startups. Richard is our AVP of sales for EMEA, and having seen the incredible impact he's had on this team, I knew I had to get him on the podcast. Thank you so much, Richard, for joining, and I look forward to our discussion. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. So first things first, talk me through your career to date. What were some of the key steps that led to your current role? I stumbled into my career. I graduated without a real vision on what I wanted to do. So I ended up actually working in the civil service in the UK, ending up in a role that was focused around strategy planning, which, to be honest, was really interesting, but wasn't particularly fulfilling. It didn't allow me to utilise what I thought my core skills were. So I quite soon after that decided that the only way to go was to follow lots of my colleagues and friends who were working in the technology sector. So I made the lead into a firm particularly focused on analysing the technology market, which I brought my kind of strategy planning skills into. And from there, I really learned a lot about technology, the technology markets, but importantly about how to go to market. So I did a lot of work with different companies, helping them develop the right sales and marketing strategy for different markets. And it took me to the next stage of my career. I, I've moved to a, a media owner by this time. And so that introduced me into the crazy world of advertising and at the time when digital was really taking off. And that experience led me to really want to get more into digital. So I, I was very fortunate to then move to Google. And I spent a long time at Google really building and defining and driving new revenue streams and new businesses for that organization, which was absolutely fascinating. It was very much a growing business at the time and one that you could go in and make a difference and you could really have some impact. And then once that part of my career came to an end, I wanted to go out and do something without necessarily having that big logo alongside me. So I moved to a, an advertising technology company. So this is really using the science and the data behind advertising. Uh, again, really helping me understand and build businesses based on an ecosystem-based approach. And from there, I really wanted to build out that knowledge around data. So I then joined a well-known data and analytics business, uh, and they brought me in actually to build a new business stream for them. And that's where I really got that passion from. It's great to be part of a business, but how can you actually really make a difference to it, impact it, build something new within an existing organization? So we built a business very quickly there, and I learned lots and lots of things. Dare I say, I learned lots of things about how not to run a business. And then over the last few years, I did a startup, again, in that data behavioral science space, which was fascinating. Uh, and then the last role was in a marketing technology business. So I've covered the data, the digital, the ad tech, the martech, and it's all come back full circle. So I'm now with SimilarWeb, but that brings all of those things together, it brings the data piece, the digital piece, the market understanding and insight, the bringing the technology from AI into that as well. So I found a great place for myself. What was it that drew you to this digital data tech space? It became very apparent to me that 
Data is the new lifeblood of a business. It's the new lifeblood of society. Without data, as business people, we cannot make the right decisions for our organizations. We cannot make the right decisions for people within our organization. And I think when I came into this, it was at a time where people knew that there was data, but didn't know how to use it. But it's been great to be part of that environment where things have developed and matured and become far more professional. And I've played a tiny role in that, but it's been really fascinating for me to be part of I know that you also have a successful career when it comes to sport. Can you talk to me a little bit about how that's influenced your career journey? Absolutely. So, yeah, sport has always been a really important part of my life. I I spent many years uh, from about the age of 11 to not too many years ago being a competitive oarsman. So rowing was my sport. And I've learned core values from sport that I think have been really instrumental into the way that I work what I bring to work, and what I think is really important in a business world. Now, a couple of those are fairly obvious. It's about hard work. It's about dedication. You need to put a lot of time and effort into becoming an Olympic champion, and you need that kind of dedication to become a top business executive as well. I think there's something around self-motivation. In rowing terms, we're up first thing in the morning, like usually when it's dark, to get out and it's cold and it's wet. I live in the UK. It's always cold and wet. So get out on the river and do your training. But also there's an element of self-belief as well, so that I believe in what I'm doing. I believe that I've got the capabilities to get as far as I can. So I think those wrap together are really important. Another element that I've learned from sport is that you cannot skimp on perfecting the technical skills. You, You need to learn those technical skills and then continue to practice them day after day. It's that muscle memory piece. And I think that's super important in business and really important as a manager within an organization or a leader, you've got to practice them. Uh, Another element is that meticulous planning. It's about setting yourself a goal and that goal might be 12 months out, it might be 24 months out, but you're setting yourself goals so you've got something to work to. But within that framework, when you're on the sports field, things change. You have to be agile. You have to be able to change the way that you're approaching a situation to get the best results. I'd like to just mention a book that I'm fascinated by, and it's by a, a former international oarsman, a guy called Ben Hunt Davis, and it's called Will It Make the Boat Go Faster? And for me, the key takeouts of this book are twofold. One is that you understand where your weaknesses are and you work very hard to improve on those. And the second one is it's the importance of the team. It's not just about you. You are part of a team that really needs to work together, really needs to be cohesive to really drive forward that maximum performance. I love all of that. And there's so many points that I want to pull out. I read a book by Matthew Syed. He's a journalist, but he used to be a champion table tennis player. And he talks about practice and what it means. And everyone quotes 10,000 hours, but it's not just 10,000 hours. It's being very pedantic about what you're practicing. I need to get better at this and this in order to become the best. So you have people who do the same thing again. So they might be very good at free kicks in football and they just do a million free kicks, but you're already good at that. You need to actually start working on the things that you're not good at. Bringing that into the business world is actually being really open to working on your weaknesses. I couldn't agree more. And I'm a big fan of Matthew Said. I regularly listen to a podcast that he runs called Sideways. But you're right, it's that moving a thousand things 1%. It's that performance-based approach of 
looking at the micro elements that need to be improved. And if you do that, you can make such a big difference to your skill set, how you come across, the impact you can have on the business. So I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. And it's almost that 0.1% growth every single day. If you keep on doing that, the graph just shoots up. And I think as managers, it's super important to realize that in terms of your people as well, because it's very easy to get disheartened when you don't see people improving as quickly as you would like. But it's actually just constantly working with them, motivating them and having this at the back of your mind that it's the little gains and actually that there are probably a little bit better today than they were yesterday. And you're going to see this big jump in improvement, but it might take a little bit of time. Yeah, absolutely. I think what many managers in my experience do is that they set these big goals for an individual and expect them to go from zero to hero in no time at all. For me, it's about setting these interim goals, these kind of micro achievements all the way through so that not only I can observe how somebody's developing, but they are also feeling that they're developing as well and that they're getting encouragement for that. I know in my sporting career, if I posted a quicker time or I lift a bigger weight or whatever else it is, just doing those small things on a regular basis just builds your self-confidence. That drives into motivation. That makes you want to do it more and learn more and improve more. So I think it's that progress that is important. You mentioned that part of what sport's given you is that internal motivation, getting up, going onto the lake when it's freezing cold. Is that how you motivate yourself? Just thinking about those marginal gains, taking it little step by little step? Yeah, so it it is absolutely that. But there's actually another piece as well that really motivates me. And that is the fact that I don't want to let anyone down. This really comes from a, a crew or a team mentality where you're not feeling great or you don't feel up to something, but you still get up and go and do it because you've got a team around you, you've got people that are relying on you. Uh, And that really motivates me as well. So I want to get better as an individual, but I also have responsibility for people around me, not just the people that are in my team, but the people above me to the sideways, all my different stakeholders. If I'm not showing up, if I'm not really on my game and trying to work something through, I'm letting the team down. And what are the key components to a successful team, both from your days in rowing and sport, but also in an organization? There's a couple of things. I talk a lot about being open, honest and transparent. Uh, And I think that anyone in a team has to do that. And there has to be an environment that you can be very open and honest with people. That in line builds trust. And for a team to work well together, there's got to be mutual trust and respect there. A little bit more macro on this, I also think that teams need to understand where they're going. They need to understand what is that vision? What is my role in helping us achieve that vision? So it's a really crystal clear vision, a pathway to get there, and an understanding of the roles and responsibilities to do that alongside building that trust. Now, I don't mean that everybody in a team has to be best friends. They really don't. But they really have to have that mutual respect, be open and honest with each other, uh, and be willing to step in and take ownership of things throughout the process as well. And how do you cultivate that level of trust in that situation where they're not best friends? You know that I'm fascinated by personality profiles. In my mind, it's a case of making sure that people understand the best way to communicate with each other, understand their role and responsibility around who owns what, but who supports what. Here's the global vision, and this is what we need to do together. The ideal team is not a one plus one equals two. It's a one plus one equals five. It's about that cumulative impact of multiple people getting the best out of each other. 
you mentioned the, the idea of personality, which I'm fascinated by. And I think it's something that a lot of managers don't take into consideration enough. They treat every single person exactly the same. Like they have their style of management and that's what they're going to do. There's a famous quote by Marcus Buckingham who says, good managers play checkers, great managers play chess. Because in checkers, all the pieces move the same, but in chess, all the pieces move differently. And great managers know that each person on their team is going to react slightly differently to certain situations, scenarios, questions, etc. And it's just so important as managers, we actually take the time to really analyze our people to understand what we can do to get the most out of them. Absolutely. I've got two examples of how I've learned through this process. The first example is I was managing a small team and I was trying to motivate them to do some specific activities and I was really struggling to get buy-in on this. And it just suddenly struck me that I I didn't really know what they were motivated by. So I had a one-to-one sessions with all of them to understand what would really motivate them to do a particular kind of sales action. So one guy said, actually, what would really motivate him would be if he got more swag So more stash from the company. I spoke to another and he had recently had a baby and he said, actually, what would really motivate me is if the company would pay for me and my wife to go out for dinner and also pay for a babysitter for a night because we're just not getting time together, that sort of thing. So that motivated him. And that completely changed my view on how to work with either of them. So understanding their motivations is really important. And that was a super learning lesson for me. The second example was a little bit blunter. I was working with a team that I'd taken over and one of the individuals and I, we just did not get on. I had a very proactive HR business partner at the time and I was talking through this issue and and she recommended that we actually ran uh, one of the personality profiling tests uh, across the team to understand how each of us uh, reacted to different communication styles. And so quickly it became apparent that I was speaking at one level and she was listening at another level and vice versa. So we were just completely misunderstanding each other. So going through this exercise, I learned the kind of approach that I needed to take with her. She learned the best way to work with me. And genuinely, the way we worked together improved no end. Now, we were never best friends. But in the work environment, we figured out how we could maximize our relationship and how we can do it so that we would both have an enjoyable time as well. So interesting that each individual has different motivators, but also just to note that those motivators change with time. So that person who's just had a kid, paying for the babysitter would be what motivates them. But six months down the line, it all kind of changes. And this is why I find management so fascinating, because even once you understand an individual, There are changes that are constantly happening that are happening within their lives and their ecosystems that you need to be on top of. And then secondly, when you were saying that you realize you're never going to be best friends, but you don't need to be in order to be successful in business. And actually, I think that's a really critical point to highlight. To your point about the changing dynamics with somebody in their own personal life, a key skill that we need to have as managers is active listening. It's not just listening. It's about listening and picking up on all of those really subtle signals that you can suddenly realize that something's happened in this person's life and it's impacting them. And then the critical thing is once you've listened and registered that, go and find out more about it. Don't just park it and think, oh, Richard's having a bad day. Go and ask why that is. Try and dig into that. And if they're willing to share that with you, honestly, you'll be able to really understand them a lot better and and understand those motivations more clearly. 
I often talk about this important aspect of active listening and how there's three levels. You can have level one where you're essentially thinking about what you're going to say next. Level two is you're listening to what they're saying. And then level three is you're thinking about all the other things, their body language, their facial expression, the tone, everything else. And when you start listening at level three, I've often found that your questions change as well. Because you can then highlight that there's almost a difference between what they're saying and how they're saying it. And it really opened up conversations because they realized that I'm not just hearing them say stuff. I'm actually deeply listening and it made them feel much more confident to be open. And that takes us to an interesting point of where we are as businesses today, where a lot of our staff, we don't necessarily spend every day with. We're doing a lot of our interactions over video calls where we are losing so much of that body language. And that makes our role as managers increasingly difficult because we can't pick up on those signals. However, we need to think about how can we do that? What is the best way to do that? When you are spending time in person with your team, really make sure and double down and uh, and make sure that you're trying to uh, observe as much as you can. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. In-person interaction is even more critical now because we're not with everyone every day. But there are also certain questions that I found that have been particularly useful, even when on Zoom. And one of them, I, I often talk about this, it's the scale. So if I haven't seen someone for a week or two weeks or whatever it is, if I'll often ask questions, how are you doing on a scale of one to 10 compared to last week? Once someone says, oh, it's been an eight. Okay, great. Why has it been an eight? Why hasn't it been a 10? I'm then able to start teasing apart and get them to express themselves a little bit more. That's a great tip. Thank you. I'm certainly going to use that. So something else I'm intrigued by is how do you ensure that people in sales think of sales as a team sport? So it comes back to a couple of points I mentioned earlier. It's about setting the vision, setting the strategy. Also setting shared goals, and again, your role in helping us all achieve whatever the goal may be. I'd also slightly change Peter Drucker's famous quote about culture eats strategy for breakfast. I actually think if we take it to a level below that is behavior eats strategy for breakfast. So it's looking at the behaviors and setting the right tone and behaviors within uh, an organization. And I'm a big fan on celebrating successes, micro successes to the massive, great big wins everyone should celebrate. But also then setting individual uh, and team objectives and key results around actually collaborating with each other and really celebrating it when somebody helps somebody else, even if they're not getting a financial gain, even if they're not going to be top of the leaderboard. So I think those sorts of things are really important. And that needs to be set from the top. But there needs to be absolute buy-in from the bottom. What's really interesting is, again, I'll refer back to another sporting analogy, is many years ago, the English rugby team won the World Cup. And they had a, a very inspiring coach. And he brought in a concept of teamship, which is where he let the team get together to actually set what they thought the minimum standard should be in their behavior. And I think that creating the framework for the team and then allowing them to develop what they feel are the right behaviors is a really good way of passing that ownership across and bringing people together. And of course, it holds people to account a lot more rather than me saying, Richard, you're not doing this very well. You're not being part of the team. If the team are saying that and and nudging them and giving them ideas about how they can improve, it's far more powerful. It reminds me a lot of the impact of coaching in general. It's when you get them to come up with a solution they're far more likely to implement the solution because they came up with it 
ultimately we're all teenagers when someone tells us what to do we don't want to do it but when we come up with it ourselves it's like the greatest idea since sliced bread so we're very much going to implement it and I love that idea that the coach told them to come up with what is the expectations behaviorally and I love the fact that you took it to the level of culture eats strategy for breakfast actually behavior because often when it's so high level it's actually very difficult to understand how that looks like in the workplace whereas behaviors are things that you can celebrate so if you want to create a collaborative culture your team can define what collaborative looks like what that actually means and those are the behaviors that you're then going to start celebrating and recognizing and that creates the culture that you really want maybe if i give another live example so we've got a big push because it's the run up to the end of our financial year and we're driving our sales activity and we're doing something in the uk around the use of the advent calendars and so somebody is the leader or the winner of something on a particular day they get a chance to open the advent calendar window take a box out but within that box there's two gifts one is for the person that for example has closed the biggest deal of the day the second gift that individual is empowered to give to somebody that's helped them get there. So help them on a particular deal, help them find pipeline or whatever else it is. So that we're starting to celebrate everybody that's involved in a process, not just the figurehead of that process. And I, I think that's such a powerful way of driving collaboration. And it also shows the power of rituals. These rituals will really embed these ideas more than anything else where they open up a box and see that there's two presents and realize that one is for them and actually one they need to start thinking about who else got them there i think that's so powerful and just an incredible idea so another question i'd like to ask is what are some of the failures from your early years as a manager and what did you learn from them so one of the failures that i had fairly early in my career would be not failing fast so i had an example where i was looking to hire an account executive and it was a long process and I was really struggling to get somebody in. And I finally found somebody and I hired them. Very quickly, I realized that it wasn't the right fit for us and it wasn't the right fit for him. He was never going to be successful in this role. But I suppose my arrogance was that I could turn this around. I could make this person a success. And I put a huge amount of time and effort into it. And in the end, it didn't work out. And I knew in my heart of hearts that it wouldn't work out, but I thought that I could give it a go and I could try. And that was disappointing to me, but a big learning curve. So if you're going to fail, then fail fast, I think is really important as well. It's a really good point. It's actually really difficult often to actually just cut losses because there's that sunk cost fallacy, right? The gambler, once they've put in enough money and enough chips on the table, you want to see how this one ends. And actually the best poker players are able to divorce themselves from that emotional attachment to what they've already invested. And actually, it's a really difficult thing to do. Yeah, and I think you're right about the emotional piece on that. Another thing that I'm really keen to hear your perspective on is coaching. I know you're an avid fan of coaching in general, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I think for me personally, it's all around people development. So now success for me is if somebody in five years time said, I wouldn't have got to the level I'm at if I hadn't have spent some time working with Richard. So that's my whole mindset. So every chance that I get to help people develop, I grasp that. There is a challenge, though, between coaching and mentoring and feedback. And it's all a bit blurry. And I think that sometimes you can fall into, oh, I'm coaching when you're not. You're telling. You're problem solving. So I think one of the things I need to keep reminding myself is to just 
ask really good questions, probe appropriately, help them get to the answer themselves. But it's absolutely critical. In one of the companies I was in, we implemented something called real-time feedback or speedback. I'd be on a meeting with one of the team and then we'd come out of the meeting and I'd ask genuinely, how did you think I performed? What feedback have you got for me? So start with them giving me feedback and my role in that. And then I'd ask them, are they open to receiving some feedback? And if they were, we'd then talk about that. But again, in that kind of coaching sense of you ask this question and how did you feel that went? Are there any other ways you could have asked that question rather than saying, you should have asked it this way. So those types of things I think are really important. There's a couple of points I want to pull out there that the question that you ask of, are you open to hearing some feedback, I think is so underused because essentially what that does psychologically is it already brings them 50% of the way. Now, one of the major issues that us as managers we have is the feedback that I'm going to give going to land? Are they going to actually listen to it? A major barrier is, are they willing to accept it? And asking that simple question, are you willing to hear a little bit of feedback or are you open to some feedback? Once they say yes, they're already bought in somewhat. And once they're in a little bit, they're going to be much more likely to hear what you have to say. So I think that's an incredibly powerful question. I want to do a little bit of a quick fire round. What is the best managerial advice you ever received? Great question. I think it was a case of somebody just saying, own it. So you're ultimately responsible for what happens in your career, in your team, in your life. So own it. Whatever change happens, make sure that you own it and drive that forward. Um, I'm a real believer in change is opportunity. So make sure that you're on the front foot and that you own that and take advantage of that. I often have conversations with managers and individual contributors about considering what's in their circle of control, what's in their circle of influence, and what's outside of both of those. Once they start thinking like that, they start taking initiative. And it's super impactful to realize that actually you have a lot more control than you think. And actually, you you don't have to go along with the wind and you have a lot more impact than you think you do. In particular, if you work for a company that changes rapidly on an ongoing basis, then you could quite easily sit there as a manager and tell your team, it's nothing to do with me. I've got no control over it. I feel as bad about these changes as you do. That is absolutely the wrong approach. You need to very much take control. And as you say, if it's in your area of control, change it. If it's in your area of influence, influence it. If it's not then that's okay, but realize that and then work on the stuff that you can control and can influence. Exactly. And really management is that in a nutshell. And and the best managers are the ones who take onus, take control of absolutely everything. And just looking at every change from the perspective of why would this be amazing for my team? Why is this amazing for me? And how can I make this amazing thing happen? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What is one skill you are currently looking to develop? One thing I'm very conscious of that I'm not doing enough of is stepping back and doing strategic thinking. Sometimes you just need to take a step back, think more strategically. And although that process might take a little bit longer, the longer term outcomes are going to be better. And the higher up anyone goes in an organization, the more that strategic thinking capability just becomes more and more important. Jeff Bezos famously said that People will congratulate him on a quarter that's just been. And he says he has no idea what's happened because he's living four quarters in advance. It's an extreme example, but I think that when you get to that level, you need to be living four steps ahead. You can't be thinking about here and now. 
And final question, what is one piece of advice you wish someone told you earlier? From the start of my career, I stumbled a little bit for a few years. I hadn't really put any thought into what my long-term career aspirations were. So I really wish somebody had sat me down a little bit earlier in my career and say, Richard, where do you want to be in five years' time? Where do you want to be in 10 years' time? And then worked with me about the skills that I needed to get to that. And it's not about I want to be senior vice president of this in this company. It's about what are the characteristics of the role that I want. And so I really wish somebody had spent time on that because I, I started my career in, in quite an internal role, quite data focused, working on projects on my own, that sort of thing. My skill set is people. I get energy from being with people, being in front of people, being part of a team. And I missed that in the first few years of my career. So that would be the one piece that I really wish somebody grabbed me by the collar and said, Richard, what are your aspirations? What are the characteristics of the role that you really want to be when you grow up? And from that, help me build a plan to get there. I think that's incredible advice. Just thinking about roles instead of titles, thinking about it in terms of characteristics and skills. And actually that's super important in terms of development in general. People often think I'm only developing if I have a title change or if I get a pay rise or anything like that, but actually realizing, hey, I've actually developed in these skills and I've developed these characteristics. And actually this is going to help me get to my dream job. And I think that's a really healthy way of thinking. And that's basically the foundation of any personal development plan that I create with a team member. It really is very much around where do you want to be? Not a job title, not a pay rise, not a company, but the characteristics of the roles and how do we build those skill sets for you? Amazing. Honestly, thank you so much for your time. This has been super enlightening for me and I love all of our conversations. I hope you've enjoyed it and hope to have you on the podcast again. Uh, it's been amazing. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really passionate about this stuff as well. Thanks very much.